The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Looking for answers in Boston today, Tuesday, April 16th. This is the world. I'm Marco Werman in Boston, where the FBI is vowing to track down those responsible for yesterday's attack at the marathon. This will be a worldwide investigation. We will take go where the evidence and the leads take us. We will go to the ends of the earth to identify the subject or subjects who are responsible for this uh, d- uh, despicable crime. Meanwhile, runners say they feel solidarity from all over the world. Even tonight. Runners are getting together in Moscow to run together en masse to support that. And you see the hashtag circulating online, Pray for Boston. It's an international community, not just the runners who did or didn't cross the finish line. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, and we begin our program today here in downtown Boston, uh, on the Boston Common, in fact, the famous Boston Common. It's a beautiful sunny spring day. People are out for their lunch breaks people walking their dogs. If you turn around in the opposite direction of Boston Common, you're looking down Boylston Street. Now, Boylston Street is where the last stretch of the Boston Marathon takes place. It's where the two bombs went off yesterday. Today, Boylston Street is blocked off. It's blocked at the end by a metal gate. There are bouquets of flowers in front of the gate and Boston T-shirts in honor of the dead, in honor of the other victims, the injured from the Boston Marathon, in honor of Boston and the marathon itself. I'd like to turn first to Juliette Kayyem. She's a columnist with the Boston Globe and a former administrator in the Obama administration with Homeland Security. We spoke to you at length yesterday, Juliet. What is the latest that right. we know at this point about what happened yesterday? Well, in terms of the investigation, not much more, except for that there was a lot of rumors. Uh, but the president came out today and really said, look, it's going to take time in this investigation. I think what he wants to do is to reserve his own flexibility. If this is a foreign terrorist threat, he's going to have to work with other nations. They may not be so... Um, happy about it being public. Uh, if it's domestic, a whole series of laws under the Constitution and our legal framework are going to apply if it's a U.S. citizen, and that person's going to be put through the criminal justice system. So I think the safe thing to say right now is we don't know between those two options, and uh, the president and all of the public officials that came out today really don't want to close off any line of inquiry. I certainly don't want to speculate, yes. but what does the evidence at this point, so, just the little bits and have, clues you know, that you've I've seen to indicate field. to you? It's, it is important to say there are some clues uh, that we can get from the attack itself. Uh, the bombs were not clearly sophisticated. So we have at least some notion that someone was put, able to put it together without much training, which would suggest a domestic or lone individual. It is very likely that the individual was present at the detonation. This was not obviously a suicide bombing, and there's no evidence right now that this was triggered by cell phones. It, it may be that that evidence comes out. And then finally, the fact that no one is taking credit for it. Uh, if this were Yemen-inspired al-Qaeda or uh, someone abroad, you would suspect that they would feel pretty free to take credit for it. The silence as each hour goes on makes me think this is a criminal who is now in hiding. And we've seen this before with, say, Atlanta, at the Atlanta Olympic bombing. 
There was an eerie kind of believable quality to yeah. uh, the Taliban saying yesterday, we had yeah, nothing to do with this. That's the world we live in. Uh, it is true. And um, there's a reason why they're doing that, right? They're trying to negotiate with the Afghan government. It is strange how different uh, things are right now, 12 years later. And a lot of it also is how different the White House is. I mean, the president is getting into you know some criticism for not using the right words yesterday. I don't actually personally get that. I think terrorism is a very loaded, it's a very scary word. Um, and so everyone knows this was an act of terror. Why do we need to sort of throw it out there, especially when we don't know what the motive is uh, of the person who did it? Are you surprised by the very cautious use of the word terror and terrorism? No, because um, for a long time, this president has not used the word terror and terrorism um, in uh, when we didn't know what it was. He doesn't use the a sign of the times. He does not use the words uh, war on terrorism. Uh, he wants culprits to be individualized and to be called out uh, by their name. And so I'm not surprised by that. It's also consistent with, I think, you know, sort of 11 or 12 years later that that was such a scary word at such a moment in time that led to a lot of things that this president including two wars, has spent a lot of time trying to get out of. And I think that there's just a, a way that he thinks about the threats we face that can't be summed up in a word. Let me ask you about those lessons learned from 9-11, yeah. because I, your colleague Kevin Cullen wrote today yeah. um, that the medical tent at the finish line right. had seen nothing worse than a blister all day yeah. uh, and in a moment turned into a battlefield triage unit. But that speaks to, I think, doesn't it, uh, what we learned on 9-11? Yeah. So 9-11 taught us many things and the training that's going on. But the, one of the key trainings is this notion called all-hazards training, which is you can train for the blisters and you can train for the dehydration and the exhaustion. And in a moment's notice, you could turn it down and, and turn it essentially into a you know casualty unit. And that's what they did. We are so lucky to have such amazing hospitals here, too. They weren't anticipating this, but they were anticipating or they could anticipate what if the winds got very bad. What if you had massive dehydration or whatever else that you needed to get runners off the field? So they knew how to do that as well. Juliet, what do you think is critical at, at this point in terms of the investigation and, and what next? So generally how these things work, if there isn't a full disclosure in the next 72 hours, we might go into a long slog. I hate to use that terminology, uh, that these things might just take time. I think it's not a coincidence that the president just said, we need time. It may be that the clues are leading nowhere right now, uh, or that there are so many clues. I mean, the photos, the video, everything, it's just going to take time. Boston Globe columnist Juliet Kayyem, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm in downtown Boston with Dina Kraft, who's a longtime foreign correspondent uh, based in Israel until rather recently, uh, and also in around Africa. And you moved to Boston when? About a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, exactly. Yeah. And um, was not expecting to be covering bombings here in what normally feels like a pretty placid city. So having covered bombings uh, around the Mideast in Africa, I mean, here you are in Boston to get away from that. What was it like watching this very peaceful marathon yesterday and then suddenly it all changes in a moment? Well, I actually come down earlier to watch the marathon, in part because, you know, it's, it's, it's everyone talks about the, the mythology of the race and the, the buzz and the vibe, and it was amazing watching people sort of cheering and clapping and, like, the real sort of go, go, go sort of feeling. But then I went home. Actually, I had to go do something, so I went home, and then I heard about the bombing, turned on the radio, assuming, oh, my gosh, there must be news, and there just wasn't any news. Um, and in Israel, as soon as any sort of word of an attack comes, the voices start blaring and, and very high-pitched, rapid-fire speech, even if they don't know what's going on. It, everyone says the word pigua, pigua, attack, attack. 
Um, and here, sort of politely at about half past the hour, the newscaster came on and, and, and gave an update with considerable bad news about the bombings, about people's legs being blown off. And even just the amount of time it took to get the news was interesting to me. What do you think accounts for that disconnect? Because, I mean, the United States is notoriously on the news and as it breaks. So. Yeah, but they're not on the news for, for bombs blo- blowing up people um, and the way they are, unfortunately, in places like Israel and around the world. And even when I went to the hospitals, you know, I actually told my editor, I said, you know, should I go to the hospital? It hadn't even occurred to them, I think, because here in Israel, of course, you rush to the hospitals, but also you get access at hospitals. You know, within about an hour, you're talking to families of victims, you're talking to people, because part of the Israeli ideas is to get the story out, to tell people what's going on, but also it's a much more informal society, and here there are rules and privacy and procedures. I rushed over to a Brigham and Women's Hospital yesterday after I heard that a suspect was possibly being held there, thinking we would get some information. It took about five hours after I arrived to finally have a doctor even come out and talk to us. You've talked about how the media has reacted and how the hospitals have reacted. What about the faces and the people in the crowd, the reaction here in Boston? Any differences there, did you notice? Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting, the confusion here. People talked about they heard a, a, the first boom and they thought it was a cannon, perhaps a ceremonial cannon, because it was Patriots Day yesterday, which is so interesting because in Israel, no one would confuse a boom for anything but something really bad, i.e. a bomb. And here it took the second boom for people to kind of come together and figure out, oh my God, run away. You know, Israelis, they're so habituated to this. They sort of know what to do. They kind of know sort of the, the motions to go through. Um, and here it's also new. And to hear people talking about how will we deal with this, how will we manage, how will we go on a marathon again in Jerusalem in the beginning of the Second Intifada, number 18 bus was, was repeatedly bombed. People say, oh, well, I'm not going to take the 18 bus again. But guess what? A month later, they're taking the 18 bus because they have to. And guess what? People are saying they might not run the marathon. They will run the marathon again because they have to because life goes on. So for you, Dina, personally, I mean, is it hard to kind of like view this tragedy through kind of a, a, an Israeli prism, if you will, that's a year and a half old. It's difficult, but sad to me is I feel the same old feeling of dread in my bones, that weariness of like, ugh. And, and also, this place sort of felt like a sanctuary of calm, that these sort of things couldn't happen. But of course, that's naive. Of course, they happen here too. Today, we're down here just a, a block and a half from the crime scene itself. Uh, if it weren't for all these uh, emergency vehicles and blocked road signs, it's a beautiful spring day. I mean, how does it feel to you? Right, I and mean, that, that part is familiar, that strange contrast of something horrible has happened. People's lives have irrevocably changed and are different, and, and some people aren't coming back from running those roads. Um, and then the, the normality, and that's, sort of, that's what Israelis live with, that sort of contrast of normal life goes on and, and mourning at the same time. And, it, and it, what it creates in Israel is a much more sort of, I think, intense understanding of um, the value of life and to sort of live life to its fullest. And I've heard those sort of comments from Bostonians today, sort of appreciating life and appreciating a a beautiful day um, that's not destroyed by booms. Well, reporter Dina Kraft, thanks so much for meeting us here. Thank you. While I was at the marathon site today, I spoke with some runners who were on Boylston Street where the race ends. Some of them were wearing their medals around their necks. A few had traveled hundreds of miles to run here. Others had come from halfway around the globe. For one runner, his marathon day included a visit from the FBI. My name is Knox Robinson. I'm from the New York running crew Black Roses NYC. We're part of like an international community of, of, uh, of runners. So as things were happening, my phone, I was getting texts from Seoul, Shanghai, Singapore, Moscow, London. But it's important to know that even tonight, runners are getting together in Moscow to run together en masse to support that. And you see the hashtag circulating online, Pray for Boston. So people have to understand that it's an international community um, that was affected yesterday, not just the runners who did or didn't cross the finish line. I'm curious to know what the FBI asked you. They were just doing their diligence, asking if 
if we had seen anything suspicious, they were asking us for any information. Because um, when you when you think about it, the the attack area is so small. What people don't realize on an international level, this isn't like a massive overproduced commercial marathon. It's 117 years old. It starts in a small town in the middle of the country on a two-lane road, and it ends in a small, old-for-America city in the middle of town. And so any runner could have seen anything, any participant, any guest could have seen anything. And, and unfortunately, the factors that underscored the extent of the damage um, also are, are the reasons that make this America's Marathon. My name is David Fernandes. I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I heard the explosion. I thought, what happened? Maybe some fires. So when I asked somebody, he said about the bomb. It's a little sad. I wish I would be here next year and I will see what happened. Maybe the best marathon ever. That's what I'm going to do. Hi, my name is Luis Juan and I'm from uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. We were detained probably in mile 26 uh, and we were diverted to a different section because at the moment that we were on mile 26 we were warned that something happened and we needed to wait for a couple of uh, time in order to realize how deep and tragic was the situation George Mayer from Vienna I think it will affect marathon running in the future because they have to rise the safety standards and I don't know how they will do it so, but I think you cannot surrender to violence so they should make it again next year and more people than ever should come to Boston and to cheer on Thanks to runners Knox, Knox Robinson, David Fernandez, Luis Kwan, and George Mayer. You can see more from Boston's Boylston Street and the outpouring of support for this city coping with shock. We have video from downtown Boston. That's at theworld.org. If you were at the marathon or have a story to tell about it, please tell it to us. Post your story at theworld.org. We have more coming up on the Boston attacks and world reaction on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman in Boston, and this is The World. There's still no information on who planted the bombs that exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon yesterday, or why. But there are some reports that the devices were fashioned out of pressure cookers packed with metal debris. A surgeon treating the wounded at Mass General Hospital here in Boston said today his team removed pellets and nails from patients. Three people died in the explosions and another 176 wounded, some gravely. Words of sympathy and support continue to come into Boston from around the world. The world's Matthew Bell has been monitoring reaction in the Middle East. It's a holiday in Israel, and many people had not been following the developments. My wife just went to a birthday party with with my kids, and most of the people there hadn't even heard the news, she told me. Um, But there has been reaction out on social media, people talking about, you know, the irony of of Israelis kind of feeling Americans' pain and and the pain of Bostonians uh, the day after this attack. Right. I mean, Israel is no stranger to violence. It's no stranger to bombs in the street. How is the news playing there now? 
One thing that's been picked up is that um, there was uh, an Israeli medical team, for example, that went to Boston and did some training with some emergency medical people there. That was mentioned in, in the news in Boston that got picked up on Israeli news sites here. Right. And that was a while ago. So that they had been kind of training uh, doctors at Mass General and other hospitals. That's right. On on the Palestinian side, there were newspapers that were printed today, and, and this was mentioned in several of them. In the big Palestinian Authority newspaper, it was the lead story. And it's competing against a, another major story in the Palestinian territories as well, isn't it? That's right. That's the resignation of the Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, which uh, he handed in his resignation several days ago. Uh, and it looks like he might be leaving government soon. Right. Now, the United States is not popular with everyone in the Mideast. What are you seeing and hearing about reactions in neighboring Arab countries? You know, for the most part, Marco, I think it's overwhelmingly sympathetic, you know, in social media and people that activists and, and writers that I follow, uh, you see a lot of outpouring of sympathy. Uh, give you give you one example, though, of the different takes that you see on this. Um, in Egypt, there was an official reaction in English from the Freedom and Justice Party, which is the Muslim Brotherhood Party uh, mm-hmm. in Egypt, that very clearly said in, in a very straightforward way, uh, we condemn this, this is against Islam. Uh, This isn't right. Um, And then there was another posting that went viral on Facebook from a top Muslim Brotherhood official, Assam al-Aryan. And and this was completely different. Uh, He talked about, he sort of connected the dots in this vague conspiracy mentioning Mali, Syria, Iraq, uh, Turkey, uh, the Kurds, and kind of suggested that there was some hidden hand behind all of this. So that, that was certainly the most bizarre thing I've seen today. Mm, Certainly not representative, though. I guess there will always be outliers. I think you're right. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem there. Elsewhere, the news from Boston is the lead story. We'll hear from China and Russia in a moment. But first, to Spain. They're hosting their own marathon in Madrid at the end of the month. The world's Jerry Haddon is in Spain, and I asked him to sum up reaction there to the Boston attacks. I'd characterize it as a collective sense of shock and dismay, a sort of feeling of here we go again on on the part of most Spaniards. Uh, The coverage has been pretty much wall-to-wall on on all the major and TV and radio stations, as you might expect, constant sort of updates on the developments of the investigation, the number of injured and so forth. And also uh, uh, a lot of reaching out to the Spaniards uh, that were there to run the marathon, 91 in total, to try to get their stories. Right. I mean, do you know if all the Spanish participants are okay? They are all okay. Nobody, no Spaniards were injured, and they're in the process now of, of slowly making their way back to Spain. I gather there was a fairly major mistake made uh, at, at the consulate, the Spanish consulate in Boston yesterday. Yeah, and it's a real indication of how seriously Spain is taking this attack and also how sensitive Spaniards are to this sort of uh, occurrence. The, the consul uh, closed the consulate in Boston yesterday at 6 p.m., which is the regular closing time. But that was, you know, more than three hours after the explosions had occurred. And apparently he didn't even leave behind a contact or emergency phone number posted anywhere uh, outside the consulate that any Spaniards in need of assistance might have been able to call. And, uh, you know, at, at that point in the day, it was still very unclear if any Spaniards had been hurt or uh, where all the Spanish runners were. So the Spanish government considered that a, a real uh, lapse on the consul's part, and uh, they're bringing them home. Right. Fired. Um, you alluded earlier, Jerry, to the fact that uh, Spaniards are kind of sensitive to bombings. Uh, r- remind us what they've lived through. 
Well, first of all, a half a century of separatist violence in the Basque country in the north of Spain, uh, carried out by the terrorist group ETA. ETA killed over 800 people um, in its campaign for independence for the Basque country. And that organization still isn't entirely gone, even though they've given up their armed struggle. And then there was, in March 2004, a bombing attack on commuter trains in Madrid that was carried out by some Islamic radicals who were eventually tried and sent to jail. 191 people died in those attacks and hundreds were injured. So for Spaniards, you know, there's a real uh, sensitivity and empathy towards um, any other country that suffers any sort of similar attack, especially if it's an ally. The world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Thanks for checking in. You bet, Marco. I'm Mary Kay Magstad, the world's China correspondent. When Chinese woke up this morning to news of the Boston Marathon bombings, many expressed shock and sympathy. In the morning, Chinese news websites and broadcasts led with the story. China's foreign ministry expressed condolences and said China is always against attacks on civilians. By noon, some five million people had posted on Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter, under the hashtag Boston Explosion. One person said he's now ashamed that his 20-year-old self cheered when 9-11 happened. There was the occasional comment that pointed out how many Iraqis, Afghans, and Pakistanis the U.S. has bombed. But then some Chinese said how impressive it was in the news footage to see people running to help the injured. One pointed out that the U.S. media were covering this event live with no censorship, as would have happened in China. That comment was retweeted 25,000 times in two hours. Then, as the day wore on, the Boston story slipped. It's not a lack of interest, it's not a lack of sympathy, but China's seen its share of random bombings, too. Buses blown up by disaffected minorities or laid-off workers. China's state-run media don't usually dwell on these things. They think it's bad for morale and what they call social harmony, so they move on pretty quickly. And on top of all that, if Chinese want to think about bombs, they've got North Korea right next door. China's been pressuring Kim Jong-un to stand down from his threats to launch a missile. And Kim Jong-un himself may be none too happy that, at least for now, he's been overshadowed. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. This is Natalia Antonova. I'm the acting editor-in-chief of the Moscow News. And the reaction here in Moscow has been very somber. And people are expressing sympathy. People are also uh, recalling their own experiences with terror attacks here in Moscow, which have been happening for some time. Uh, There was a post that went viral on Facebook uh, just yesterday by a woman, a very famous bar owner here in Moscow, who was at the Tushina uh, Music Festival in 2003 when it was bombed by two suicide bombers. She was right next to the explosion when it occurred, and uh, she talked about the lingering PTSD Uh, and how whenever something like this happens, she takes it very personally. And that has just really blown up in the Russian blogosphere and has been shared over and over again. Reporter Natalia Antonova in Moscow. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the latest on yesterday's bombings at the Boston Marathon. People here in Boston weigh in on their city's response. The only thing that we could do is uh, to extend our hand to all other Bostonians. As a matter of fact, I think that Bostonians, just like myself right now, we need less speeches. Probably each one of us needs a hug. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, 
providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman in Boston, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. A heinous and cowardly act. President Obama used those words today to describe the double bombings at the finish line of yesterday's Boston Marathon. Three people died from their injuries, including an eight-year-old boy who went out to watch the marathon with his family on the Patriots Day holiday. The FBI is leading the investigation. Special Agent Rick DeLaurier said this morning the hunt for answers begins in Boston but may not end here. This will be a worldwide investigation. We will take go where the evidence and the leads take us. We will go to the ends of the earth to identify the subject or subjects who are responsible for this uh, uh, despicable crime. And we will do everything we can to bring them to justice. The world's Arun Roth has been following the twists and turns of the investigation as details emerge. Arun, what do we know at this point? Not a lot, Marco. It's frustrating still. 24 hours after the blasts, uh, on the two big questions still, who did it and why, still a total blank. No one has claimed responsibility for it. Uh, We had a big press conference this morning with law enforcement from top down all the way down from federal officials to law enforcement here. And uh, they did reveal that there were only two devices. The reports we'd heard about other devices not being exploded was not true. But in terms of officials speaking on the record, they're giving really very few details, nothing at all, really. And what about unofficial sources? What are they saying? Unofficial. Well, that's what we've been hearing a lot. Apparently what happened, the FBI gave a briefing to congressional figures. And uh, apparently they were told that the device was a pressure cooker bomb. Basically, it was explosives and you know ball bearing shrapnel put in a pressure cooker and detonated that way. Okay, so we need to be very careful with this next question then. What could that mean if this type of bomb was used? Well, it's interesting because this actually wouldn't be the first time a pressure cooker bomb has been tried to use in attack against the U.S. Uh, You might recall the 2010 attempted bombing of Times Square. That was uh, Faisal Shahzad, who is a member of the Pakistani, who was associated with the Pakistani Taliban. In his van in Times Square, there was a pressure cooker device there. There was also an incident, uh, uh, Nasser Jason Abdu, who was a U.S. Army private, in Fort Hood, who was planning a big terror attack. He was foiled, but among his possessions, again, was this pressure cooker bomb. Now, it's important to note, again, that this is associated with uh, South Asia, with Pakistan. It's been used in attacks in India and Afghanistan. Our, Our forces, our coalition forces in Afghanistan have actually encountered these bombs, but we don't want to draw too much of a smoking gun from that. It's a very popular design. You can go online. It's a very simple bomb design, so it's something anybody could find. And the investigation continues. The world's Arun Ra. Thank you very much. WGBH reporter Ibi Caputo is also with me in our studio. She's been making the rounds of Boston hospitals, finding out how doctors and nurses are faring, treating those who were wounded by yesterday's bomb blast. Um, first of all, Ibi, for you, what stands out among the comments coming from Boston hospitals today? You know, I think that the most tragic thing is when the doctor, I talked with this doctor uh, at a press conference, George uh, Valma, Valmahas. He's the chief of trauma surger, uh, services at Mass General, and he was saying that they just the they had to amputate several patients, but they actually just finished off what the blast had done. That people these were lower extremity injuries. The bomb was apparently low to the ground, and it blasted off their legs. And he said that they they just finished off the amputations um, from above the knee. 
So amputations seem like some of the worst injuries uh, in the blast yesterday. W- what is the range, though? What, what, what have doctors been seeing? So, yeah, there's amputations. There's also internal bleeding that some people are suffering from. They lost a lot of blood, those people who are closest to the blasts. Uh, there's also, you know, it runs the whole gamut because the doctor that I mentioned before, he said that the blast, there's several different types of injuries, including the people who got thrown against wall or fell to the ground. So it's everything from scrapes to those very serious wounds and the people are still in critical condition. Mm. Boston hospitals, we have to say, are top-notch. They see many patients. They're busy, though. But this this is different. Describe the scene. Describe what you've seen for the past 24 hours at some of these hospitals. I know it's been hard actually getting in. It's, it's actually been very hard. Security has been tough both last night and today. You know, I cover the hospitals. They're usually you can just walk in, walk out. It's pretty, pretty easy to get access uh, inside. But today and yesterday, you know, they have armed security, either police officers with assault rifles or the Metro SWAT team. They're out there. They're they're there for visibility. I have to mention, they said there have been no specific threats. They are there just for visibility, but it is very serious looking. WGBH's Ibi Caputo, thank you for the update. Thank you. Kevin Cullen is a longtime columnist for the Boston Globe, and today he wrote about the resilience of Boston and the people who live here. We caught up with him earlier today. Whoever put those bombs there does not understand this town at all. We have a saying here in Boston, we'll take two punches to land one. And uh, whoever put those bombs there was cynical beyond belief. But if you wanted any evidence of what this town is made of, look at the film. And when that first explosion happened, firefighters, cops, EMTs, paramedics, and more impressively, just ordinary people, civilians, ran toward the flame and the smoke. And even when next explosion occurred 12 seconds after the first one. No one flinched. They kept running. They kept pulling. I thought one of the most poignant symbols yesterday is Boston is an international city. It's, you know, there are a lot of people from different parts of the world here on any given day, but it's never more international than on Marathon Day when there are people from literally every continent who are here to run in this race. And Boylston Street, where the finish line is and where the attack took place, is lined with the flags of all these countries. It looks like the United Nations down there, because it is. And those flags were pulled aside and thrown to the ground by the first responders so they could get to the victims. And as I described it in my column today, those flags laid there looking like victims themselves. And in some ways they were, because this was not an attack on the Boston Marathon. This was not an attack on Boston. This was an attack on all of us. Kevin, you covered the troubles in Northern Ireland for years. When when this event happened yesterday here in Boston, did your thoughts turn to those years? Yeah, it actually reminded me of two things. It reminded me of the bombing in Oma in 1998. 28 people and an unborn child were were murdered by the, the real IRA. I was walking with my wife and kids on a south side in a place called Bray, south of Dublin. I was living in Dublin at the time. You know, this was after the Good Friday Agreement. We thought this was all behind us. And I remember a cop called me. He said, you've got to get up to Oma. And I just dropped my, my wife and kids up and raced up there. It took me three hours. And the faces of the people, it reminded me, I saw those faces yesterday, this sort of shock, horror, stunned look. Some people, there, the explosion had hurt their hearing. And the, the other thing that happened yesterday reminded me of Oma when after I, I spent half the day reporting in Oma and I filed my story, 
I went down to um, the hospital and was there to give blood. And I had to wait three hours <laughs> because there were so many people lined up. And my friends that work in the hospitals told me the same thing happened yesterday, that people just showed up to, to give blood. It also reminded me yesterday of I was in London the day after the 7-7 bombings in 2005, and it was the same look. But also, I just remember the way Londoners reacted. They were really upset, hurt, angry, but there was a steely resolve. I mean, you know, Londoners survived the Nazis and the Blitz. They survived the IRA. They were not going to be cowed by these nihilists who put bombs in places to kill civilians on purpose. And I think that's the same healing I, I see in Boston, that the resolve is only stronger. Kevin, you write today that on 9-11, Boston and the U.S. lost uh, their innocence. But yesterday, Boston lost the notion that, as you write, we will ever feel totally safe in the city again. I'm just wondering, how does Boston proceed until there are answers? And what if there are no answers? Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we, we can't answer that until there's more definitive information about who did this and why. In the meantime, we're just kind of trying to take care of each other and, and hope, hopefully take care of some of these first responders who saw some horrific stuff. And I know there's a firefighter, a young firefighter. I, I'm actually going to see him now because I know he had a really rough time of it. Um, just want to let him know we love him and support him. And that's all we can do now. How is he doing, your friend? He wasn't doing very well last night, but hopefully he's in a better spot. And I know a lot of the fighters that I know went to see him at his house and it's a great fire department. It's a, it's a real brotherhood, and uh, they will support this guy. Like, the questions that are out there, I think, will eventually be answered. But in the meantime, this is just the time for everybody to um, take care of each other. Well, Kevin, we wish him, we wish you and your larger Boston family well today. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Michael. Another Bostonian personally affected by yesterday's events is Nasser Widadi. He does human rights outreach for the American Islamic Congress, or AIC. The AIC was created just after the September 11th attacks, when many Muslims, or people thought to be Muslim, came under intense scrutiny and suspicion. The nonprofit group has tried to build bridges among people of different faiths and ethnicities. Earlier today, Widadi tweeted that he was still having a hard time adjusting to the reality of the attacks yesterday. I began by asking him why. I'm an immigrant, and I came to the United States seeking a new life. From? And from Mauritania. And uh, then the 9-11 attacks happened, and that was highly traumatic. And yesterday, just like for, uh, for you to really understand how close this is, um, I work in the Back Bay area, and the AIC Center, which is basically a center that hosts cultural activities is, uh, in, in the city, is like almost like a block and a half from the explosion. But the shock and the trauma is that this is the place I personally walk by at least twice a day. And that countless place on Boylston Street on in downtown Street, Boston. And yeah. thousands of other Bostonians do the same. It could have been any of us. And that's why this kind of, like the, the, this kind of event is just too traumatic and too close to home. It, it brings a flood of memories that uh, many of us who came to this country seeking refuge and a new life were hoping to never have to see again. In general, how are your friends of Muslim and Arab descent faring in the aftermath of yesterday's bombing? People are very concerned because uh, for the, the reasons that I just explained to you, mm -hmm. this is highly traumatic, but also there's concern about uh, some of the unpleasant memories of what happened after 9-11. And uh, I can tell you that I personally was detained 
um, right after 9-11 because somebody was too afraid of the sight of uh, what was termed then a bunch of uh, Middle Eastern-looking men uh, congregating in an apartment. Um, that experience was also very unpleasant, but let's be clear here. This is nothing compared to the suffering of the families of the victims and the victims themselves because what happened yesterday um, regardless of uh, of the victim and the perpetrator, this was a terrorist attack. And this is a, uh, an attack on my city, on our city, on our citizens. It, it triggers those memories of 9-11. Uh, have you experienced or seen anything or heard anything uh, to make you worry about Muslims or Arabs being targets again, the way it was after 9-11 for some? I mean, I, I've spoken to many friends and uh, seen many, uh, a lot of reactions over social media. And there's a lot of anger at the attack itself because uh, of the obvious reasons, the loss of human life and the senseless nature of such an attack. There's also uh, the contradictory reaction, which is um, we Muslims and Arabs don't have to. Every time that somebody does something criminal, um, why do we all collectively have to take the blame or explain ourselves once again? I mean, the AIC was created in the wake of 9-11. Do you see this event as kind of a, a, a true real-time test for, for your group? Um, it's a true test for all civic leaders and all community leaders. But we hope to be able uh, to provide something positive in our communities. And we will hope also to lead by example. Have you seen progress since 9-11? There's been a lot of progress, actually, since 9-11, because I cannot begin to describe to you the level of sympathy that we have gotten and understanding that we have gotten from uh, different faith community leaders, civic groups. As a matter of fact, I had a quick conversation yesterday with uh, uh, my contact in the FBI, uh, who were, again, like all of us, under shock and trauma. They offered support and they offered protection should it be needed. And the, the only thing that we could do is uh, to pray for them to succeed in their mission and also to extend our hand to all other Bostonians. As a matter of fact, I think that Bostonians, just like myself right now, we need less speeches. Probably each one of us needs a hug. Nasser Wadadi, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Nasser Wadadi does human rights outreach for the American Islamic Congress in downtown Boston. The eyes of much of the world are turned here to Boston today, but of course the planet continues to spin. Among other stories we're watching elsewhere, at least nine people are dead and more than 50 wounded in another bombing, this one at a campaign rally in the Pakistani city of Peshawar. Also in Pakistan, a powerful earthquake centered across the border in Iran has killed at least 13 Pakistanis and destroyed hundreds of houses today. And in Venezuela, violent clashes over this weekend's disputed presidential election have left seven people dead. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman in Boston, and this is The World. When the bombs went off yesterday here in Boston, it was barely seconds before police and security forces snapped into action to help the injured and secure the area. And if the attack had happened in another U.S. city, the response might have been just as swift. As the world's Alex Galifant reports from New York, urban preparedness has come a long way since September 11, 2001. Anecdotally, at least, the police and emergency response in Boston yesterday was efficient and effective. At least from what we know about it, it was even more organized than the response to the uh, July 7, 2005 bombings in London. Bruce Hoffman is an expert in terrorism studies at Georgetown University. 
certainly in the decades since 9-11 in the United States, uh, the training, the instruction, the knowledge, the rehearsals that federal, state, especially local law enforcement and emergency responders have engaged in left them well prepared to deal with you know, a completely unexpected and tragic development like yesterday's. After the attacks in New York, Washington and Pennsylvania, the 9-11 Commission made many recommendations to mitigate the threat from terrorism. But American cities didn't wait for that report to get going. There's a complete cross-fertilization across the United States with, in many respects, uh, the New York City Police Department serving as the exemplar model, but I think with very impressive inroads being made in Los Angeles, I think as we saw yesterday in Boston, Chicago, all major cities. In New York, at least, private businesses have strengthened security since September 11th, too. There are buildings that I teach at that the security is so tight, even though I go there on a weekly and a bi-weekly basis, if I don't produce my identification, they won't let me in. Greg Sintron has been an EMT in New York since 1993. He teaches preparedness classes in the city. Many companies require that workers complete such courses as a condition of employment. Sintron says post 9-11, people started signing up for themselves too. The mindset is there now. It wasn't so much in the past, but now, in the past, it was pretty much, well, it happened, but it won't happen to me. It won't happen in my backyard. People now want to know. But elsewhere in the United States, many people want to move on. With Osama bin Laden dead, there's been a sense that the country could finally attend to other things. The economy, gun control, or immigration. But, says Bruce Hoffman at Georgetown, we can't wish the terrorism threat away, be it foreign or domestic as much as we may want to believe that we've turned a decisive corner. This is a threat that I would argue is more cyclical than perennial, but is really both. And it's precisely, I think, when we lower our guard that the shock of these types of events is all that greater. Now debates in Washington about the appropriate scope and size of federal counterterrorism programs will start up again. Still, Hoffman rejects the idea that Americans should simply accept terrorism in American cities as a permanent state of affairs. It's not a matter of resilience, he says. Only that it's a very hard problem. One that, as New York City EMT Greg Sinchon reminds me, everyone has a part to play in solving. As the old saying goes, if you see something, say something. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. We return now back here to Boston, where the investigation into the marathon bombings continue. So far, there's no information on who may have planted the bombs or what the motive might have been. But there is some information coming in on the bombs themselves. Reports suggest that the devices may have been pressure cookers packed with ball bearings and other metal. Doctors at Boston Hospital say they removed nail and pellets from some of the many wounded. The the FBI is leading the investigation, and it's asking people who were standing along the marathon route to send in their video, audio, and photos from the scene in case they can provide any leads. Some of those who witnessed the attacks also ran in the race. Ernst Van Dyke is a nine-time winner of the wheelchair division of the Boston Marathon. He's from South Africa, and yesterday he sprinted into second place on Boylston Street. Afterwards, he went to a hotel for a post-race celebration and to watch the rest of the race from a ballroom overlooking the finish line. Everybody was waiting for people to come in, and then we heard the first blast. Initially, I thought it was maybe a sort of a cannon signaling a certain cutoff time, which I couldn't understand why that would be happening. And then the second blast happened right across the street from where we were, and we saw it all. It shook the building 
I, I saw people injured. I saw people down. I saw the panic, people running around. I saw what I'm pretty sure was a guy lying with both his lower legs severely injured, if not amputated. And it was fairly, fairly shocking. I mean, you've, we, in my sport, you know, I deal with amputees and I deal with people that's lost limbs. And, and oh, from what I'm hearing is there's several kids that lost arms and legs. And and a kid that died, an eight-year-old boy, that's just terrible. And you cannot imagine who would be so sick to want to do this to children. The moment my thoughts are with them, and in time, you know, next year coming back to Boston, if the opportunity would arise, and you would need, you no, know, I would, it, I would love to meet some of them and encourage them. But at the moment, you know, you need to let the healing begin and let people recover. And and losing a limb is a very life-changing experience, and it's the road to recovery is quite a long one. Ernst says that in the midst of all the confusion and panic, there were moments of clarity and kindness. I saw people running away, but I also saw people running towards where this blast occurred, and I saw everyday people ripping off their shirts and putting on tourniquets and and trying to help injured people. I mean, the way that people responded was not what I would have expected everyday people how to respond. And everybody was just trying to help and trying to secure people and and, and get them to help as quickly as possible. And I think that's one of the thoughts that, that will stick to me, is how, how people try to help, even though the conditions were so terrible. So um, we're heading to, towards London tonight. The London Marathon is on Sunday. You know, we need to go on and, and go compete in London. And I think if you think back to 9-11, the New York Marathon, a month and a half after 9-11 went ahead. A marathon symbolizes overcoming adversity, rising to the challenge, and... I think more than ever, people competing in the London Marathon on Sunday is going to be showing that courage and showing that ability to overcome. And not, you know, we can't go crawling into a hole and start hiding because there are terrorists and, and people out there and, and trying to rob us of our normal way of living. We we need to go on living. Or to riff on a quote now making the rounds on social media by conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. This will be our reply to violence, to run more intensely, more beautifully, more devotedly than ever before. You were just hearing the words of South African wheelchair champion Ernst van Dijk, who's preparing to go to London for his next marathon. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. The world's coverage continues over at theworld.org. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, 
supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.